Do you ever think about where the stuff you buy comes from? We attach a lot of meaning to where we think something is from. A good association can boost the price of things and the esteem in which we hold it, as demonstrated in this clip from the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off. The 1961 Ferrari 250 GT, California. Less than 100 were made. My father spent three years restoring this car. It is his love, it is his passion, it is his fault he didn't lock the garage. A bad association, on the other hand, can make a product into a punchline. Like in this clip from the 1987 parody movie Dragnet, starring Dan Aykroyd and Tom Hanks. After losing the two previous vehicles we had been issued, the only car the department was willing to release to us at this point was an unmarked 1987 Yugo a Yugoslavian import donated to the department as a test vehicle by the government of that country and reflecting the cutting edge of Serbo-Croatian technology. On this two-part episode of Mondo Mercato, we examine the values we attach to where we think things are from, even sometimes if they aren't actually from there. Where are you from? Come on. From the Georgia Tech Center for International Business Education and Research at the Scheller College of Business, this is Mondo Mercado Understanding Global Markets. Mondo Mercado aims to demystify the complex world of international business through education and entertainment. Have you ever thought about where the things that you have come from? Sure, the ordinary, everyday things that you use, you probably don't ever consider. But there are things that you own that you purchase and value because of where they come from. Not just a personal reason, but because of your perception of that location. There is a field of research in academia that looks specifically at these particular types of effects. And today we're going to talk about those effects. So let's start with an interview with a colleague who specializes in this field of research. I'm Francis Olgado, and my area is international marketing here at Georgia Tech. What are country of origin effects? Okay, first of all, we got to set the stage. So you okay. got to keep in mind that um, we're looking at it from a marketing perspective, uh, from the marketers, international marketers' uh, point of view. Um, so the, the question now is, well, uh, marketing is focused on the customer, right, and, and satisfying customers' needs. So we're looking at um, an effect on the customer in terms of their preferences, their what they buy, their behavior, basically. So customer behavior. So a lot of things affect this behavior in terms of uh, their preferences, what they buy, what they like, what they have a positive attitude about. And one of them is possibly the country that's associated with the brand, with the product, and the company behind it. And that's essentially what's called country of origin or has been called country of origin effects on the customer or consumer or customer behavior. Now, so any effect on the customer uh, from a marketing perspective can only have three possible options or outcomes. One is it's a positive effect, meaning like, oh, they, they have a positive attitude towards your product or brand. They go buy it. They prefer it, things like that. The other is a neutral effect well, they, where they don't have any positive or negative uh, perception of the product. They don't know about the product, essentially. And the last but not least is the negative effect where it has a 
negative pers- uh, effect on the perception. They don't like your product. They won't buy your product. They don't prefer your product. It's a country of origin. However, these days, because of the nature and the dynamics of international business, it no longer is the same concept. Because before, it used to be the country of origin referred to the country it was made in, which was the same as the country of where it was headquarters, which is the same as where this brand is associated with also in the same country where it was actually manufactured. Okay, nowadays you can have multiple countries involved in that one particular product. In other words, a different country of where the brand's headquartered, another country of where the um, parts come from, or multiple countries where the parts come from, and yet another country or multiple countries where it was actually put together or manufactured or assembled, and a, another possible different country of where it it sold. Okay, so you have all these multiple countries. Um, I guess making it a more complex. Difficult, I guess, complicated effect, right? So the question now is, well, which which is more important then? If you have all these countries associated, and from the research, uh, basically, bottom line, they found that country of brand was the factor typically that is the strongest effect on customer perception. The country that they associate with the brand. Quick example: if you were to buy a Sony TV set made in Japan versus a Dragon TV set made in Malaysia, obviously you'd pick the Sony TV set made in Japan. But if you were given a choice, everything being equal. A Sony TV set made in Malaysia, which some of them are,、uh, versus a Ninja made in Japan, you would pick a Sony TV set made in Malaysia, even if it's made in Malaysia, because the positive effects of the Sony brand associated with Japan outweigh the negative effects of a product made in Malaysia, let alone a TV Malaysia. And the consumer sentiment is that Sony is such a strong brand that it'll make sure that even if it's made in Malaysia, it'll be just as good. Fujigawa. I don't know that brand. It, it really it's not really Fujigawa. It's Sony guts. Wouldn't it be better with the whole Sony? No, 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 no. This is what you want. Four hundred fifty. And the result is a country of brand is strong. Okay. So that's basically what what、uh, is now more commonly called or should be commonly called、uh, country of association effects. As opposed to country of origin. Yeah, that, that, that's much like I use、uh, an example in class、uh, from personal experience. I was driving to work one day and I saw a a, a pickup truck, a Ford F one fifty for the record,、uh, that had a bumper sticker on it that said, "Please don't put my flag on your foreign car."、Mm-hmm. And I actually use that to spark discussion of what exactly is a foreign car because I bring out the uh,、um, uh, cars dot com and a couple of other、um, sources. Have ranked cars by their level of Americanness,、mm-hmm. and when they have done it, some of the cars that show up on the list as being the most American cars include Hondas and Acuras, and sometimes like Toyotas and things will make the cut because they're manufactured in places like Alabama or、mm-hmm. Kentucky, and they are manufactured from parts that are sourced nearby、mm-hmm. uh, from manufacturers. Now, all the manufacturers that are owned, or many of the manufacturers that are in that supply chain, and I have worked in that supply chain. Are Japanese owned, and I don't think the person with that bumper sticker would be particularly happy if I put that flag, the、mm-hmm. American flag, on my Honda Ridgeline. But I don't have one. But if I did, if I were to buy a Honda Ridgeline,、right. I put that on there.、Um, I, I don't think that would would go over too well. Really, it's country of association. So if it's a Honda brand, right, the country of association is Japan, right, even if it's actually made. In America, by American workers from American-made parts, and, and that is why Honda invests a lot of marketing, like advertising, communication, whatever, to make people aware,、uh, customers, a potential customer in the market, aware that hey, we might be a Japanese brand, we might be Japanese headquarters, but really, all the things that you said, parts, where it's made, all the employees that we hire are American, so we're as American as can be in that in that sense. And so that what they're trying to do is address any negative effects on a customer who would say, oh, I got to buy an American car、um, because. This This is a, Jap- a 
Honda is a Japanese car, but right. they're doing that so that, oh, it's not really a Japanese car. Similarly, many people feel that's why Toyota made the effort to get into NASCAR several years ago mm-hmm. to overcome the, the, the country of association effects of being right. a Japanese car. And now, you know, NASCAR, of course, is like the most American of American things. And one of the, the top racing groups in there is, is Toyota, which at its heart, not quote unquote American brand. But the only reason why they're doing that is because of the negative perception about it being Japanese, right? Not about the car being an inferior car or a low quality car. And that brings to mind, I guess, the rationale behind why do you have these effects of country of origin? And there's basically two kinds of effects. One is um, a cognitive effect that results in country of association that some of these associations that we talk about posit. And that's basically based on the product itself and its performance. Like, for example, you have a positive cognitive country of association effect. For example, Japanese electronics, for example, German automobiles, for example, French wine, for example, where based on experience, based on uh, from the customer's perspective that the product from these countries in this category is good in terms of quality, in terms of their attributes and things like that, reliable, things like that. It develops a this positive cognitive uh, country of association effect to the point where it, it even becomes a stereotype. All wines from France are, should be good, okay? Or all Japanese cars should be high quality or, or German cars or electronics, et cetera, et cetera. It could also have a reverse where because of experience, because of a, a cognitive recognition that, hey, this, this doesn't really work in terms of the actual product, product attributes, you might have a negative effect like Chinese toys or uh, toys made in China as lead in the paint and things like that or uh, flimsy other flimsy Chinese products. So you have a, I guess you could say, a uh, stereotype of Chinese products in that sense in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. So you can have a value added or value degraded type of stereotype cognitive effect. The other, which uh, basically is the Toyota case, is where you have an affective uh, country of association effect, meaning it's based more on not on the product or what the product can do, but more on the peripheral sentiment, emotions, could be a, a political issue around it, a social issue around the product and the brand itself. For example, you have, in Toyota's case, this whole buy American thing, patriotism. You're, the flag on there, they say, proudly made in the USA. The whole point there is to uh, appeal to your uh, emotions, your patriotism specifically, where you're going to buy the product not because it's a good product, but because it's made in America. And it's all about what America stands for. And so that's what they're trying to capitalize on, a positive affective effect of the fact that it was made in your own country and that's patriotic. It's happening every day. Somewhere in America, a factory is working overtime to meet its demand. A worker is hired. A family is fed and clothed and sheltered and educated and loved. It all happens because somewhere in America, a choice is made every day. The choice to buy American. At Walmart, we buy American whenever we can. So you can too. Because somewhere, someone's counting on that. What can you do to bring it home to the USA? And the other is, uh, for example, this whole Amnesty International marketing uh, with regard to blood diamonds. Mm-hmm. Okay, So they take a lot of uh, communication, a lot of marketing saying that you shouldn't buy diamonds from Africa because it's it's blood diamonds and all the, the issue that goes around with that. Uh, but it's nothing about the quality of the diamonds that, I don't know, a De Beers puts out or, or some diamond brand puts out. Uh, so that's more of the affective effect. So things like 
patriotism, things like uh, social issues, social causes, that's more of the Affective Countries Association. We're going to take a brief break for a commercial message, but when we come back, we'll have the second half of our interview with Francis Olgado of the Scheller College of Business. Hello, this is Michael Oxman, Managing Director of the Ray C. Anderson Center for Sustainable Business at Scheller College of Business. We at the center are working to integrate environmental and social issues that present both risks and opportunities to the private sector into business school education and practice. We do this through academic research, courses and co-curricular activities that emphasize real-world engagement with corporate partners, and via collaboration on a range of international sustainability issues. For more information, you can find me at michael.oxman at scheller.gotech.edu. Thank you. Well, for all these iconic brands or, or iconic uh, uh, products like uh, like Diamonds or, or the Toyota brand, they're very closely associated with particular countries. Mm-hmm. But what if you're a small or medium-sized company and nobody really knows who you are? How can you leverage uh, okay. if, if you have positive country of association effects? Uh, good question. In fact, there is a classic case of uh, a small to medium-sized uh, situation where you have, for example, smaller grape growers, smaller farms, no one big, uh, big farm or big commercial operation, and they're all uh, fragmented, and they all belong to a emerging mar- emerging economy like Chile. Okay, mm-hmm. and so the question is. How, as you said, how do we leverage country of association in our international marketing, particularly with regard to a more developed market? In fact, the largest wine consumer in the world so far, not producer, but consumer, the U.S. market, where it's a mature market. There's established competition from old world co- competitors and new world competitors. There's, of course, the domestic uh, wine industry, right? How do you penetrate that market or uh, try to uh, market in this foreign market? So basically, the one uh, thing that they they do and one of the applications for uh, this type of situation, SMEs, is to what? Get together, to collaborate together. So because no one small company has the ability, the resources, the, the know-how to to compete in such a market. So collaboration. So they these all these small wine growers in Chile got together. The other thing is not only collaboration with uh, the businesses, but with the government. Because you have to keep in mind, the government stands to benefit. The country as a whole stands to benefit too. The economy of that country stands to benefit. So it'd be the government's best interest to get involved too. So collaboration with the Chilean government, with the Chilean wine growers, etc., getting together to make the effort in terms of leveraging country of association. So what do they do? So collaboration is one. The other is to um, research the market, research the U.S. market, okay? And also to figure out, given the U.S. market, what are your strengths? What are your competitive strengths? You can't develop a country of associations for like, uh, in Chile's case, computers, right? They don't have the capabilities as a country and, and as an industry in that, in that regard. But what are they strong at is agriculture and specifically wine, uh, grape growing and wine manufacturing. So they focus on that and not anything else uh, as part of the collaboration. And they look at the U.S. market, research the U.S. market, and they find, oh, there's this segment of the market, not the market as a whole, but there's a segment that prefers and is willing to pay for this high-end old world wine. There's also this segment that uh, doesn't want to spend that much and is, it just wants the cheapest wine. So there's the, there's the uh, what is that, uh, Ripple, a Boone's Farm uh, <laughs> buying segment. Okay, Right. Um, what they found too, out too was much, at the time, right, at the time, but there's this middle segment uh, that's willing to pay more 
but not a lot more, but also wants at the same time uh, a relatively good quality wine. Not mm-hmm. uh, exotic wine, but the, uh, the good quality wine and is willing to pay for And so they focus on that segment. And given that that target segment, they marketed, they did all the marketing towards that segment. And to make a long story short, for example, uh, at its height, Chilean wine, I believe, was the third most imported wine in the U.S. market. And Concha y Toro, uh, you may have heard of it, was the top imported label. Uh, to the point where they developed that further and um, got into the more high-end wines. I think it's Casillero de Diablo. is their high-end label. So they're even to expand the market in that sense. So they have to collaborate. They have to research, segment the market, capitalize on their strengths, okay? And of course, market. Implement your marketing. And of course, be synergistic with it. The classic example of a, a successful case in this is Colombian coffee. More and more people are waking up to Juan Valdez and his 100% Colombian coffee. When you think about it, uh, coffee is, is a commodity. Coffee is coffee. Yeah, there's Arabica, there's this, there's that. But it's, in terms of one con- positive country of association, there wasn't any at the time. So what did they do? The same uh, uh, marketing uh, implications. So they, bottom line, they uh, branded coffee from Colombia to the point where now they have their own uh, Starbucks com- competing uh, coffee shops, Juan Valdez. Right. Coffee shops all over the place, and and they and they uh, part of their success or what contributed to their success is they were able to personalize a commodity, not just brand it, but they personalized it in creating Juan Valdez and his burro. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's an actual person, so you could actually relate to to this actual person. That's part of their execution. But there you go. We're going to take a brief break for a commercial message, but when we come back, we'll have the second half of our interview with Francis Olgado of the Scheller College of Business. Hello, this is Michael Oxman, Managing Director of the Ray C. Anderson Center for Sustainable Business at Scheller College of Business. We at the center are working to integrate environmental and social issues that present both risks and opportunities to the private sector into business school education and practice. We do this through academic research, courses and co-curricular activities that emphasize real-world engagement with corporate partners, and via collaboration on a range of international sustainability issues. For more information, you can find me at michael.oxman at scheller.gotech.edu. Thank you. And now for the conclusion of our interview with Francis Olgado. So you've talked a lot about like with the Chilean wine and, and yeah. the Colombian coffee. Those are kind of, as you pointed out, neutral uh, affects. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you do to overcome if you're a small, medium-sized company, if you have a negative affect? Okay. That's good. Okay. Prescription-wise, generic-wise, there's only three possible, as I said, negative, neutral, or, or, or positive, right? If you have a positive, obviously, the prescription there, marketing implication there is maintain and strengthen, build, create, uh, make it more positive if you can. So that should be your goal in your marketing. If it's neutral, all right, um, then the prescription there is create uh, a positive from the neutral um, and, and strengthen and build. Uh, what's more difficult, as you said, is, is if it's negative. Because the first thing you need to do, you cannot start building a positive or creating a positive if it's negative. The first thing you need to do is deal with that negative and why there's that negative and address that negative. And then 
once you do that, then you can start focusing on, okay, let's create a positive. So having said that, uh, that's the first thing you need to do is address the negatives and then uh, start building a positive. Well, it, it was a very complicated thing with a lot of issues, but do you think that that was one of the things that really hurt, if you remember the Yugo, when the Yugo came out, that oh, yes. Yugoslavia had a very yes, negative you, affect? You bring out a, a good example of what not to do and what to do, all right? You, at the same time, you had the Yugo come in in the U.S., uh, and at the same time, you had the Hyundai come in. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, they were both positioning, and they were both trying to target the oh, low-cost, uh, cheap, if you want to call it that, uh, lower-priced uh, automobile. Okay. The problem is, with the Yugo, um, they, didn't ha- they had a bad product. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with the, with the Hyundai... Um, they, they had a better product in terms of minimal quality that the, this is a generic, uh, uh, strategy. If you're going to go low cost, you got to make sure while, yeah, you're going to, um, not have all the, uh, bells and whistles that drives up the cost, but you have to maintain that certain level of minimal quality that the customer uh, expects even at a low price. So you cannot go below that because if your car doesn't work, I don't care how cheap it is to the customer, they're not going to buy it. Okay. So you know why, mister? Because you drove a Hyundai to get here tonight. I drove an $80,000 BMW. That's my name. Going back to the Yugo and the Hyundai, the Yugo did not have that quality. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's why we don't see it anymore and it's not around. Now, in Hyundai's case, they had the quality, but in, in, from the perspective of the American cu- customer, they had no idea what you, uh, what, uh, uh, what quality that was. In fact, they had a negative perception because, ooh, a Korean car. Ooh, Korea, at the time, Korea is, is, uh, a, an emerging market. It's just like, uh, what used to be Yugoslavia. It's not Japanese. It's not German, right? So, uh, at, at, at best neutral, but for most American customers, it was negative. Okay. So what to do? Well, we have the quality. Okay. So we don't need to, um, uh, do anything about that, but they don't know about it. There's a lot of uncertainty. It's a new market, new product, new brand. So how do we do that? Well, uh, make a long story short, you need to uh, make people aware, uh, make people uh, confident of that quality. So make a long story short, their key to success is that never heard of in the industry, bumper to bumper warranty. Another 30 seconds of common sense. Lots of people know Hyundai Excels are remarkably affordable, but did you know how remarkably durable they are? Eli Todd has driven his Excel over 100,000 miles, but then so has Barbara Drybus. Fact is, quite a few Excel drivers have smashed the six-figure barrier. Plus, lots more are well on their way. For your nearest Hyundai dealer, call 1-800-826-CARS today. And that basically told the American Zoomer, hey, you know what? Uh, we're, we're backing this up. There is quality. So there you go for the uncertainty, the, the negative uh, country of association that you have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we all know, make a long story short, the success story. Now they're going into not just that uh, category, but now they're going into more upscale automobiles, more higher margin automobiles because of that success. Right. Right. They've segmented down now because they have the, the Kia brand, oh, which yeah. is for well, that's, entry. That's, and then that's, Hyundai is kind of yeah. middle of the road. Yeah. And, and then they have the Genesis brand for, right. for that, that's higher. Yeah. And that way, that, that's another uh, generic marketing thing where you, you, so that the customer is not confused, you create different brands for different categories. So, um, to kind of, of wrap it up, how, what's the best way for a, a firm, a small or medium sized company who may not have a sophisticated marketing uh, staff, what's the best way for them? to access and use and leverage these these country of association effects to increase the le- the possibility of success when they enter a new market. 
Well, the the best thing for if you're starting as a company is to get together with other companies. Like I said, collaboration. And uh, yeah, you don't have the uh, resources like an ad agency or a research company or things like that. So uh, I guess you have to be more creative in one in, in one sense and how to uh, be able to do it. Okay, but yes, you but you still have to do your homework. You have to do more long. Uh, you have to look at things more long term. Okay, you might have to things uh, look at things more outside the box. Um, just one last thing to add. Sure. And in uh, moving forward, uh, there's the issue of China now and Chinese products. And uh, the whole uh, discussion is, uh, well, how can Chinese um, international marketers uh, become truly global? Because when you think about, yeah, everything around the world is made in China, mm-hmm. but it, they, they don't have uh, as, uh, as many global brands of Chinese product. And they have that negative perception of inferior Chinese product. So I guess the bottom line prescription for them is, like I was saying, is to first deal with that. Why is it negative? Why is it, do they think Chinese products are stereotypically inferior or low quality? So essentially, they have to work in the quality. Do, I, I said that was the last one, but I do have one more follow-up, if you, if you, uh, if you sure. don't mind. Do you feel that generationally, that country of association effects is fading in, in younger generations ah. as people become less and less aware of where the stuff that they get is made. Okay, yes and no. Um, because one one question is, well, is this effect uh, still important? Okay, and when is it important? Uh, and how? when is it, okay, it's important, but uh, it varies in, in um, I guess, uh, significance of effect. It depends, uh, catch-all answer. It depends on two things. Uh, micro factors or characteristics and macro characteristics. What do you mean by micro? It depends on, as you said, in your case, younger people, uh, on the customer itself or themselves or in the consumer themselves in terms of who they are. It could be age. It could be geographic location. Uh, it could be uh, educational background. It could be uh, whether they're blue collar or white collar. Okay. The second micro um, factor is uh, what kind of product are we talking about that towards this particular type of uh, customer? Are we talking uh, complicated products, uh, high involvement, high margin products like automobiles, like uh, electronic equipment? Or are we talking about uh, more convenience, uh, low involvement, uh, lower margin products like things like, I don't know, running shoes, bubble gum, T-shirts, things like that? It would depend on those two things. it also, and I'll give you an example if we have time, but it also depends on the macro factor, the economic um, development level of both the manufacturing country. In other words, logically, yeah, the more uh, developed you are, the more positive uh, that country of association effect is on your products because you can make better products as you technology, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But it also depends on the consuming country's level of economic development. Emerging markets, uh, more developed, uh, more developing markets, they rely on country of association more than more developed markets for two reasons. One is where well, you're emerging. So obviously imported versus domestic products, right? Um, so you would go for, uh, as I said, more economically developed sourced products. Uh, so imported are better than domestic. But at the same time, uh, that's pretty much uh, one of the few attributes that you rely on. Ooh, where is this made? And that tells you, okay, is it good or is it bad? As opposed to in more developed countries, okay, yeah, we could uh, consider where it's made, but we have all these other resources, all these other information to help our decision making. Other product attributes like uh, uh, fuel efficiency, like uh, bells and whistles, things like that. In addition, of course, to the country of association. And we have the resources to gather all that information and to rely on. 
So we have more input to, to affect our, our, our perception. Mm -hmm. So based on that, um, it would, it would depend. So did you have any last words of advice for, for companies that are trying to go abroad and, and maybe they have a, This is Robert Burgess, the Administrative Director of the Denning Technology and Management Program, abbreviated TNM. Our office is in the Scheller College of Business here at Georgia Tech. The TNM program is a competitive admission minor that's designed to breed cross-functional leaders in technology and business-related fields. The classes emphasize experiential learning and include hands-on elements that allow those TNM students the opportunity to offer interdisciplinary solutions to real-world problems faced by our corporate affiliates. All undergraduate majors on campus are welcome to apply each October for admission to the cohort the following fall semester. About 300 students apply each year. It's a very selective program as we only have 65 seats in each cohort. If you'd like more information about the TNM program, please contact me at robert.burgess, B-U-R-G-E-S-S, at scheller, S-C-H-E-L-L-E-R, For our next story, we investigate the history of a product where the name we know it by has nothing to do with its origin. Mary Isabel Fraser was born in 1863 in Dunedin, New Zealand, the eldest of three sisters. Throughout her life, she was called by her middle name, Isabel. She and her sisters were high academic achievers. Isabel received first a bachelor's and then a master's degree in physics from the University of Otago. She taught at several schools until, in 1894, she became the principal of the Wanganui Girls' College. In 1903, she took a leave of absence to visit her sister Katie in Japan. Together, the sisters traveled across Asia, visiting missionary schools. In Yichang, Hubei province, present-day home of the Three Gorges Dam, Isabel received seeds of the plant known locally as Kuyiguo. With agricultural restrictions being much more lax in 1904, she carried the seeds back to New Zealand with her. Isabel turned the seeds over to a nurseryman in Wahangui named Alexander Allison, who actually didn't plant the seeds for two years after receiving them from Isabel. Kuyiguo is a woody vine which doesn't produce fruit until it has reached about four years of maturity. So it wasn't until 1910 that the first crop was harvested. New Zealanders were impressed by the new fruit, but found the Chinese name impossible to pronounce. In fact, in China, the original name of the fruit is Mihotao, or monkey peach, supposedly due to how much macaques love to eat the fruit. New Zealanders, however, didn't have much experience with monkeys, and could only draw from what they knew about it. It was from China, and its flavor and color reminded them of gooseberries. So they called it Chinese gooseberry. The Chinese gooseberry was mostly a novelty until Hayward Wright developed a cultivar in the 1950s that was large, good tasting, and importantly, held up to long transport, making the fruit suitable for export. The name Chinese gooseberry was quickly recognized as a name, though, that was not suited to export. First, the fruit were being grown in New Zealand, not China. Second, most people had no idea what a gooseberry tasted like, and the original name had been attached to the first cultivars, which
which were about the size of a grape. The new Hayward cultivars were about the size of a chicken's egg. Berry no longer seemed to apply. So in 1959, agricultural exporter Turners and Growers made a bold decision. They rebranded the fruit in a way which pulled it up from its Chinese roots and firmly transplanted it in New Zealand. It would be an import, but because of the name, it would be permanently connected with the nation. It would be like croissants are to France, like tea is to Britain, as America is to apple pie. And in the end, it was a huge success. The plant, given the Latin name Actinidia deliciosa, became a global favorite. Success, of course, spawned imitation. Other nations began producing and selling this tasty delicacy, and New Zealand's share of the global market shrank in the face of increased competition. Today, New Zealand is the largest exporter, but China, the nation where the fruit originated, is currently the largest producer. The fruit in question, if you haven't figured it out by now, is known to us as kiwi fruit. Love them or hate them, they are a fruit that almost everyone knows. Even though they are produced and consumed more in China than any other market, they are still connected mentally with the island nation of New Zealand. And in what might be the ultimate irony, in China, there recently has been a growing instance of domestic Chinese producers falsely labeling their product as, quote, grown in New Zealand. What was originally a Chinese fruit is masquerading as an export because Chinese consumers associate higher quality with imported fruit. That truly is a sweet irony. So we've reached the end of part one. What are our three takeaways? First, what country we associate with a product might have nothing to do with where the product is actually made. Consumers are much more connected to what country they associate with a particular product than reality, which might actually be more complex. Second, country of association effects can be positive or negative based on consumers' assumptions about the country. It's an emotional, not a logical response, so having data on your side won't help you. Third, if you benefit from a positive country of association effect, play it up. If it's neutral, build up consumer awareness. And if it's negative, take steps to counteract it. Next time, we'll learn more about country of association effects and how more companies from places that weren't associated with excellent things change that and what lessons we can take away from their experiences. See you then. Mondo Mercado is a production of the Georgia Tech Center for International Business Education and Research, funded by the U.S. Department of Education and housed at the Scheller College of Business at the Georgia Institute of Technology in beautiful Midtown Atlanta, Georgia, USA. Georgia Tech's Cyber Director is John McIntyre. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to encourage us to do more, please like and share. The editor for this episode was me, James Hoadley. Special thanks to Dr. Francis Olgado for his expertise. The producer is also me, James Hoadley. Special thanks to the Scheller College of Business and Maria Misbach, Director of Marketing and Communications. Our opening and closing music is composed by Scott Holmes. The opinions expressed in this episode are the opinions of the speakers and do not represent an official statement of the Georgia Institute of Technology or the U.S. Department of Education. Information provided on Mondo Mercato is provided for educational purposes only and does not constitute professional advice. Always contact a qualified professional before undertaking any business investment. Special thanks to KCEL Productions.
costume you're wearing. Where did you get it? In London or Rome? No, I believe in patronizing local craftsmen. When I went to find my kiwi, I looked inside the pantry. When the pantry no have kiwi, I looked at my roommate. My roommate ate my kiwi, and so I ate my roommate.